Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. John, when did you first become interested in aviation? I'm not, I, I was never really all that interested in aviation is the bottom line. I left, I was at school in Newcastle in the 1970s. I was lucky enough to go to a grammar school. I wanted to leave school. Everybody expected I would do A-levels in a degree. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to leave school and get a job. And I loved electronics. When I say electronics, I'm talking about valves and batteries <laughs> back then in the 1970s. Yeah. Um, I was really interested in that. I was applying for jobs as an apprentice in different uh, industries. The Central Electricity Generating Board, which is now, I don't know, ele the Electricity Board or something. The Post Office, as it was then, which clearly is now BT. Mm -hmm. um, and I was in Newcastle waiting for a bus home after an interview. And the bus stop was outside the RAF Careers Office. And I went into the RF careers office to get, because they had all those glossy brochures then. Yeah. You didn't, there was no computers. You didn't do it online. And I picked a glossy brochure up. Now, my brother was already in the Air Force. He was a, a technician in the Air Force himself. And he'd said, you know, if you're interested in that, that RF's a great career. And so I picked a brochure up and I kind of signed on the dotted line straight away. Uh, wow. And I joined as an electronics technician. I did five years as a technician. And after five years, then I saw that, if you wanted to really move on in the Air Force, clearly you had to be an officer. Uh, and I'd got to the dizzy heights of corporal by then. Um, you had to be an officer and you had to fly. You know, there's no doubt about that. The senior echelons of the Royal Air Force were all uh, aviators. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I decided. I said, I'm going to try that. I applied to be a pilot, uh, went for all of the tests and didn't get through um, all of the tests. And they said, you know, you'd be better, you know, just Go, starting now, if you want to do it as a training as a fast jet navigator. Uh, so after my officer training at Cranwell, I started on the tornado. So I was never one of those people that loved aviation. I've got friends who build who built their own little aircraft out of balsa wood in their garage, and they go fly the damn thing at the weekend. So John, come and fly the balsa wood something or other. No chance. I'm not getting in that damn thing with you. <laughs> so I, I I loved the life of the Air Force. I loved the I loved the flying, but I was never somebody who said I've got to be. You know, I never had this dream as from a kid of flying. No, which is a bit boring, really, as I joined the Air Force. That's a, it's a great story. So we're here to talk about the tornado. So tell me your first thoughts on the jet because she's a beauty, isn't she? I loved being on the tornado. Again, I think that when I went through training, so officer training in 86 and start my navigator training 87 at Aria Finningley in Doncaster. Uh, you were after, I, think, I can't remember the exact time scale, but kind of halfway through what I think was some like an 18 month course, you were streamed about whether you were going to go uh, multi-engined aircraft or fast jets. And I was lucky enough to go what was then called group one uh, fast jets. Uh, and then towards the end, you had a, 
you had to decide what aircraft you wanted to fly. And of course, there was a load of aircraft then for NAVs. Yeah. So, you know, the very best guys would uh, wanted to do the Buccaneer, then the Phantom. And the Tornado was a bit further back because it was regarded as a much easier crew aircraft. Because it, it was, by 1980s technology, it was high tech. By today's technology, a bit of old bloody Microsoft One or something like that. <laughs> uh, and I wanted, I remember, you know, they say, which, what's your preference for postings? And I said, uh, Phantom, Buccaneer, Tornado. And most of us went on the Tornado, in actual fact. But I loved it. I loved flying it. I loved being part of the crew. I loved being part of the squadron. And as an aircraft, it's an amazing aircraft to be a nav on because it's by the standard, it was so up to date, so technological. It's not by today. So there was, then there was no um, what we would call GPS, global positioning, what most people understand as a sat nav. You know, they sat nav in their car with a digital map that says you're here. None of that existed. So the tornado had inertial navigation, which meant that you would program in your starting point and allow the navigate the inertial navigation to set itself up. That could take 15 minutes on the ground. Nothing was done fast. <laughs> you had 15 minutes waiting for the, uh, sorry, I, the, inertia, the IN's not sold. No, no, wait, wait. So if there's a massive scramble, you're still waiting for this damn <laughs> bit of kit to sort itself out. And the, then the inertial navigation because of the, the cogs and the whistles and everything else, would know how fast you're going, what attitude you are at, where you are. And it would basically say, right, I know that you started there. You've been flying at 500 mile an hour for 20 minutes heading this. So you must now be here. Yeah. And it kind of worked, but it it just sometimes it would wander off and it could be it could be half a mile out. It could be two miles out. And so you had to keep the kit updated. That was the NAV's role. Um, but and you did there was no digital map. You had what was called a moving map, and it was quite. Lit. I think it was thirty-five millimeter film or something like that. Wow. And it rolled through, and it then was projected onto a screen. And so it was quite old-fashioned by today's standards. And of course, the terrain following radar was an astonishing bit of kit. I mean, astonishing for the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the terrain following radar again. When you talk about the first Gulf War and what everybody was doing. Um, people, I was tweeting about this earlier in the year, and I had serving RAF officers, two stars, who I've known for many years, because I'd said, you know, they were hurtling across the desert at 200 feet uh, on tier. And, and they would say, yeah, but you had night vision goggles, John. No, we didn't. Night vision goggles, they, we just, there, was, there, some, there was some kicking around, but they were not compatible with a tornado. And you are not flying into combat wearing night vision goggles. It, absolutely not. So the terrain following radar is basically, in the first nights of the Gulf War, is basically looking ahead, looking at the way the sand dunes undulated, the way power lines crossed, the way a radio mast might be there. And the terrain following radar was simply flying the jet with a pilot sitting with his hands on his lap, monitoring the systems. Mm -hmm. Total darkness. Total darkness. You can't see the nose of the aircraft. You can't see the wings. And so it was an incredible bit of kit. And the first time you flew terrain following radar, it took quite a bit of training. We went to Goose Bay in Canada, and you'd be flying an eight ship, so eight tornadoes, parallel track. So you'd have two up front, a couple of miles behind, two, two, right the way down, all eight jets. And we would fly this in cloud in the, the valleys and the mountains of, uh, of Canada to test the system, all eight jets 
flying in parallel. And the whole of the attack would be flown in completely uh, automated, uh, using autopilot um, and terrain following radar. And it was astonishing. And you trusted it. Can you, I mean, you trusted it implicitly. But it required the kit to be updated. So <laughs> if you thought you were here, and, and in actual fact you were here, and that you, some people came really close together. There's a couple of occasions in the Gulf where people have gone into a, a target at kind of 200 feet in the darkness. And when they reform on the other side, they've crossed over in the, in the dark at the same height at 200 feet. <laughs> and they haven't realized that they've crossed over. And that happened on a number of occasions for real and in training. Anyway, I'm banging on a bit too much. Yeah, just because I want to know it uh, just from your new book, one of the blurbs on the back, it gets you straight away, doesn't it? Yeah. We were doing about 620 miles per hour, 200 feet above the desert in total darkness. I mean, great. And it was, I mean, and, and the, I, I, we designed this uh, cover. And if you look at that, so you've got the tornado coming down the runway with a, under fire and the JP233. And the whole point about it, Mike, was nobody had ever seen anything like this before. We had trained uh cold war tactics that you know we're talking about the 80s so we were prepared for a cold war turning hot the soviet union uh invading what was then uh, west germany so east and west germany the iron curtain yeah um and that's what we trained for so we were really experienced in ultra low flying during the day we practiced regularly in the couple of areas in the north that were as allowed and in goose bay or in las vegas on operate, uh, exercise red flag, flying down to 100 feet and maybe uh, 540 knots. What's that? 620 mile an hour, yeah. something like that. Um, and on terrain following radar at night, 200 feet. And we trained for all of that. And we trained against the Soviet missile systems. We trained in red flag. We trained in uh, the Otterburn Rangers. We trained in uh, tactics against fighters. So we have either our fighters, coming and attacking us as we're going in, or American fighters or French fighters, Canadian. We trained, but nobody had ever done it for real. Not one single second of combat had been flown until that first night when people did that for real. And I remember um, Nigel Isdell, who led one of the, 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 who led the very first sortie. Yeah. So we had three major tornado bases in the Gulf. Each tornado base set up eight jets. Uh, so 24 tornadoes are heading across the Saudi-Iraq border uh, in total darkness, like a, a black cloak over the cockpit. Nobody can see anything other than the glow of the instruments. And they're all 200 feet, 540 knots heading in uh, uh, towards the target. And Rizza said to me, he said, uh, and we, we are, because the pilots are clearly monitoring the systems uh, and the navs are making sure that the systems are updated and keep checking everything else. And Rizza said, so I looked out in my left 10 o'clock and out of the darkness, a little pinprick of light appeared. And he said, as we flow, flew closer out in the left, he said the pinprick of light uh, started to evolve. And what I could then see was that it was uh, an exploding mesh of AAA fire, interlocking, interweaving, spiraling uh, AAA anti-aircraft artillery flak, people would know from the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And he said it's just rising from the ground and it's forming a dome in an airfield in the distance 
that is just a, a wall of exploding cannon fire. And it's just sparkling, sparkling, like a sparkling Christmas tree light. But they're not lights. They're tubes of molten explosive metal. metal. And he said, uh, he said to John Broadbent, our squadron boss in the back, he said, bloody hell, somebody's being hit over there. And JB said, yes, mate, that's our target. And as he said that, <laughs> all the jets, because they're all on autopilot, all turned left and all pointed at this dome, this wall of lead. And he said, you couldn't, you couldn't do anything about it. And because it was the first night, he said, there wasn't really any time for fear because you couldn't really understand. But you got, he said, you got in the middle and you were probably only in it for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, as you went in and out, dropping the JP-233s on the airfield. He said, but it was like trying to run through a shower without getting wet. And JB, John Broadbent in the backseat, described it for me the best. He said, you know, when you're driving through a really heavy snowstorm and all you can see is the, the flicker of the snow in your headlights. And then suddenly, as you, the snow starts to whiz past your mm. car window as you go through it. And he said, that's what it was like. And he said, you don't know how you're not hitting a flake of snow, which is an exploding bullet. Some were. Some people came back with holes in. And obviously, as time went on, we started to lose people as well. But the point, and I, I, again, I kind of wandered off a bit. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. We trained, we prepared, but nobody knew what it was going to be like for real. And it was a shocker on the first night, and it got worse. So how did yourself and the crews feel going in? Did you feel confident or was the nerves there or would you not show that? I think a bit of everything. I think on the first night, there were nerves, there's no doubt. But I certainly remember a sense. I went on the first morning during the daylight. I certainly remember feeling uh, a sense of, I'm going to say fear, but it was you just couldn't do anything about it. It's like being a firefighter or a, a paramedic, you know, this nobody had ever done it before. So it's like being a paramedic that's never attended a massive crash on the motorway. Yeah. And suddenly the blue lights are going and you're hurtling down and you're faced with a pileup of five cars, 15 people injured, people, and you can't, you can't say, oh, well, I'm not doing that. That looks a bit difficult. <laughs> I'm a form. <laughs> you, know, you just have to run into the middle of it yeah. and you're trained. And so there was a sense of fear. There was a sense of trepidation. But I guess what everybody says in the book is the overriding sense was, I'm with my mates. I've got my mate over here, my mate over there. I can't let them down. <laughs> but, and we might talk about it a little bit later, depending on time. Some people after two, three days of doing the same thing and increasing losses, knowing that if this went on, it could be, you, you might not last long. There were a couple of people who had quite severe mental breakdowns in actual fact. Wow, it's unfortunate. But what, in your opinion, and maybe the other crews, was the, I mean, we didn't have really have a choice, but was a tornado the right aircraft for that environment? It was exactly the right aircraft. Indeed, there's a huge misnomer, Mike, about the tornado and the first Gulf War and low-level flags. So first of all, on the first couple of nights, everybody, not almost everybody, was flying low-level. So on the first two nights, the, Amer the Americans lost two strike eagles yeah. at low-level. And people don't know that. They are two of the most, by what were then, the most modern, highly defended, high-tech aircraft. They lost two flying low level. They lost a number of A6s. Um, obviously, the Tornado lost uh, a number of aircraft, but everybody was flying at low level on the first few nights. The B-52s, there's a little bit from one of the B-52 guys, because I'm trying to explain that 
people say, oh, the tornado was doing these missions that were wrong. They don't. They're dangerous. That's what yeah. we tried to do. The B-52s were flying at 50 feet over the desert Christ. on the first night. And they've got, they're doing it on basically on radar. So they, they've got no kit that's meant to be doing that. The B-52's wingspan is, is it 185 feet? I think something like that. It's big. And they're flying <laughs> at 50 feet. And the, the guy who's describing it saying there's a guy, the guy in the back saying, just be bloody careful. But that's, they were flying because everybody was terrified of the Iraqi Air Force, the Iraqi uh, air-to-air missiles. That's what our big fear was. And the Iraqi surface-to-air missiles, the SAM-3s, the SAM-6s, the SAM-8s, their radar-guided missiles. We, that's what our big threat was. We didn't know what FLAC was. We didn't know what AAA was. Mm-hmm. So the tornado was designed to fly at ultra-low level into the heart of an airfield and drop JP-233. And that's what it was doing. And it did it really well. And people said, oh, well, it didn't work. Or it, but nobody, there's no real uh, evidence. that What we do know is that the Iraqi Air Force stopped flying yeah. in any real numbers very quickly. And that's because the Tornado Force, which was, in American terms, a small part of the force. I think, mm-hmm. what did we have in the end, 60 tornadoes out there or something? I think it was about that towards the end. The, the, we were, the, the, the Allies were putting up between two and 3,000 sorties a day. Great. A day, two and 3,000. And so sending six tornadoes to one airfield and six tornadoes <laughs> to another airfield, you know, it, but it was part of an overall campaign. The campaign was to ground the Iraqi Air Force so that the troops on the ground were not threatened when they put their boots on the desert and crossed the border. And everybody has forgotten about this in their hindsight expertise. They just don't understand. The tornado was the right aircraft, and it did the right job. And once that job was seen to have been done, because the Iraqi Air Force stopped flying, there was no intelligence to suggest there was any particular reason, but they stopped flying. Mm -hmm. Then it went on to do other things. Now, Medium-level bombing in a tornado was not what it was designed to do, but it did it. And then, of course, very quickly, buccaneers were rushed into the region to provide laser targeting. And I talk about that and the reasons why it happened, and more importantly, the reasons why it didn't happen in the first place, because they're, they're, they're people, again, don't understand it, but they're there. And then, of course, uh, TIALD, the Tornado uh, Laser Designation System, infrared came in as well. So everything was being rushed into service. So the tornado developed in what would normally have taken, I don't know, five years. It developed in five days, 10 days in the course of war, of what it was doing. And it was, it, so it did its job and the guys who did it, did it amazingly well. I didn't, I was sitting on my fat backside in Baghdad by then. Yeah, we'll get onto that maybe in a, a bit there, John. But was there much uh, camaraderie com- um, uh, between like all the crews when you were at base, was, or was there still like that kind of banter there, or was it all focusing on the job? A uh, bit of both, depending on where you were. Um, at Bahrain, we had a, quite a, a mixed squadron from different bases, and that was quite difficult because the tornado force was massive. And again, people have forgotten this. Go back to 1990. The RAF had 430 tornadoes, 430. So uh, I think it was nine squadrons of, uh, sorry, 11 squadrons of of GO1s and five or six squadrons of F3, something like that, I can't remember, but it was 430 tornadoes. And so you didn't really know. You know, so at my base was RAF Larbrook. We had four squadrons of tornadoes. And I knew my mates on the squadron. I knew a few people from the other 
three squadrons who were my era who had been with training with or something like that. But you didn't know. Yeah. And so and then and then, so you had other people from different squadrons and then you had other people from different bases. And so some of the guys from RAF Marham, 27 squadron and 617 squadron came out to our base in Bahrain. And I didn't know any of them at all. And there wasn't much mixing. You wouldn't do it that way now. Uh, uh, but it was just the way that it was formed. But the camaraderie was absolutely there. Uh, and the banter was absolutely there. And, you know, if the base, for instance, the base at Tabuk uh, was much more austere than ours. You know, there were very austere conditions and everybody was living really closely together. And that camaraderie was really important. So it depended on where you were, really. Absolutely. Uh, but before we get on to chat about the new book, uh, yeah, let's talk about your famous incident. Uh, has it followed you around all your life? Do you ever get questions or not get questions about it? <laughs> it does. I mean, it's one of those things that it's, I, you know, I, obviously you'll have the picture somewhere. Um, you know, myself and John Peter shot down, captured, tortured, paraded on TV. Uh, so in one way, it was the worst moment of my life because it just signaled everything had gone wrong. So uh, the attack had gone wrong. I'd made a mistake on the attack run and the bombs hadn't come off the aircraft. So that had gone wrong. Then three minutes later, in an in, not connected incident, but three minutes later, heading, uh, heading out of the theatre, we were hit by a heat-seeking surface-to-air missile. So we were shot down. JP luckily managed to see both of my pilot save both of our lives because we were uh, we nearly hit the ground. Um, we were captured, we were interrogated, we gave in to the interrogation and then paraded on TV. So first of all, when it happened, I had no idea what it meant. I knew that there was a gun against my head and I'd been threatened with execution if I didn't do it, but I had no concept that it would become one of the, oh, you can probably guess yeah, it, one of the most... Uh, one of the most famous images of uh, of conflict, um, and it, so it was a uh, it was the worst time of my life because for me it signalled failure from the failure of the attack right through to the failure of re not resisting interrogation. Mm -hmm. But there is no doubt about it that I would not be talking to you about book number seventeen. Yeah, I know. Yeah, seventeen. <laughs> you know, I've got an English O level from. 1979 that's the limit of my writing <laughs> my english o level and and 30 years on it you know i'm now i'm still writing about completely different experiences so i it's kind of life sliding doors um i don't know what i would have been doing if i hadn't been shot there but i wouldn't be talking to you about book number 17 so <laughs> it has followed me about a bit and in some ways, and it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, it detracts from everybody else who did a brilliant job flying the tornado. JP and I, you know, not so much uh, after one, you know, half a mission. Um, uh, but all the other guys did an amazing job. So it's important to, to remember their contribution, really. Absolutely. And uh, obviously... Uh um change your life professionally in terms of writing and stuff but it did it change your outlook on everything else a little bit um so I, I don't want to sound too kind of grand but when you have faced death and when you have thought i am now going to die and that happened to me probably two or three times uh during captivity or capture and captivity where i thought okay my life's over i am now going to die 
that does give you a kind of a curious perspective on what is uh, and isn't important. Uh, but it hasn't it hasn't really changed anything kind of grand for for want of a, uh, a, a better. You don't go outside and like, oh, that's a tree. You don't do anything like that. <laughs> I, I do remember, and everybody said this, kind of in the darkest days of captivity. I mean, in the really, really bad times. Uh, kind of pray. I was I I was brought up as a in a religious uh, uh, household, Catholic, and I went to a Catholic school. Uh, and I, but I was, you know, I was lapsed. I didn't do any. I had no interest in religion. Yeah. And but everybody said this. Everybody said that they prayed, and they promised to, in the darkest days, in the most terrifying moments, mm-hmm. they prayed to whatever God they had been previously taught about. <laughs> and they said, everybody said the same thing. If you get me through this, I'll be a better person. And it kind of lasted for about 10 minutes after we were released, to be perfectly honest. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, all um, stories are going to be in the book. But before we get onto the book, John, I want to talk about your time on the F3 because that doesn't get enough love. What did What did you feel about not love? From? Not, not, not enough love. No. I loved, um, I loved the F3. But air defence was kind of a, a very new thing to me. Ground attack, navigation, maps, uh, fixes, updating the kit on the tornado was uh, on the geo one was a relatively straightforward air defense bit more kind of three-dimensional chess in your head the tornado system was great it was not the tornado f3 was not a fighter it was never going to win in a one-on-one knives in a bloody post box fight with an f16 or an f15c it was never going to win uh but what it was first of all with crew two you had massive situational awareness, and it was very, very good at uh, coordinated attacks. And so when we took it um, on, I think it must have been Green Flag, I think, something like up to Canada, um, we did. We gave a really good account of ourselves. You would, if you got into a mix-up with eight F-15s, you weren't going anywhere. <laughs> but if you could stand off, and be sneaky and use its incredible low-level capability, its fantastic, fantastic by then radar capability. And on a number of occasions, uh, we managed to take down, uh, we were tasked with uh, attacking the HVAA, the high-value air asset, so either something like the AWACS. So the Americans were meant to be protecting the AWACS, and we would be tasked as the enemy to go and get it. And we got through on most occasions by sneakiness by <laughs> doing what we did best by uh and so it, it gave a good account of itself and it was it was designed to stop 40 soviet blackjacks or bears coming across from the greenland iceland uk gap and you know launching either their cruise missiles or dropping bombs it was meant to stand off and you know it, with its four sky flash and four sidewinder missiles it was meant to be kind of targeting from afar, and it was really good at that. It was really good at it. Not listen, it wasn't as good as a strike eagle. No, nobody's going to say it was, but it was good, and it was a great aircraft to fly because it was still a fantastic aircraft to fly at low level, a brilliant aircraft to fly at low level. So yeah, there you go, folks. A bit of love for my beloved F three from John Nickel there. So I appreciate that. But yeah, John, let's get onto the book. Um, it's just come out recently. It's tornado in the eye of the storm. Tell us what the book is about for our viewers who may have not picked it up yet. 
It is the story. Well, as you said already, Mike, I told my story in Tornado Down 30 years ago about what I did. So this is the story of everybody else. I am a passing character in the book. But what I've done is I've gone back and interviewed all of my friends and colleagues who flew the first operations, interviewed the other prisoners of war who were shot down and ended up in captivity. And most importantly for me, interviewed the families, the loved ones who waited at home. So the wives, some of whom lost their husbands, the daughters, some of whom were woken up in the middle of the night to see your dad's missing in action, some of whom were woken up uh, at night to see your dad's missing and he's not coming home. Uh, and so it's the interwoven story of the tornado at war in 1991 and the families who fought their own war uh, back home. Yeah, I think that's very important to, um, you know, recognise the families because they don't get enough love and support sometimes from the public. I think we forget about it. And sometimes I think the people, we, the people at the front line forget about it as well. Because yeah. they are they are fighting a real battle. There's a couple of instances in the book where, you know, in the military, we call it the knock at the door. <laughs> Middle of the night, somebody's coming to your door and you know it's bad news. Yeah. There's one, and it was in training before the, the war started, and it was uh, OC-27 squad, Bill Green. Uh, he set out on a nighttime training mission uh, because he was deploying to the Gulf in a few days. Uh, and I spoke to his wife, Jenny. In fact, I've just got an email from her because she's just read the book. Um, uh, I spoke to his wife, Jenny, and she's in bed uh, one o'clock in the morning. And she woke up. What the heck is that? Puts her dressing gown on, walks downstairs, and she, she, this is uh, RF, RF Marmy's OC 27's one. She says she opens the spy mm-hmm. hole, looks out, and the RF Marm's station commander, Jock Stirrup, who went on to be the chief of the defense staff, actually, Jock Stirrup is outside in his full dress uniform with his hat on, and there's a padre with him. Mm-hmm. And Jenny said, if you are an aircrew wife, you know what that means. If the black car pulls up to your house, you know what that means. And she said she wouldn't let him in. <laughs> and it's tragic and sad and, and emotional. But she, in the one way, it's 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 just the, the, the emotion of it is surreal. And she said she wouldn't let him in. She sat back down on the step and she said, poor old Jock had to stand outside. Because if I didn't open the door, the news couldn't come into my house. Yeah. And she said eventually, clearly, she had to open the door. And he said, uh, Bill's missing uh, mission over the North Sea. There's no hope whatsoever. Uh, and that's all they knew. They recovered bits of little bits of the wreckage. There's some footage of them picking out, I think, a bit of the thin or something uh, in 1990. But his body was never recovered. He'd gone. That was it. Gone. And that in, in from so she said goodbye to him as he went to work. They had plans because he was deploying in I think three or four days. They were going off to see his parents in Northumberland actually, uh, do a little bit of walking on the beach, and then he was going off to war. And he went off to work, and that was it. No goodbyes other than I'll see you later, love. Nothing. And I interviewed Jenny at length about her experience and Bill's son Jeremy. Uh, who was a 17-year-old teenager then. And that was really emotional, talking to, to, to Jeremy about his father's death and how it affects, still affects them 30 years on. Yeah, it's still, It still resonates. The, war, the Gulf War, the tornado at the Gulf War, the ramifications 
still resonate 30 years on. And that was quite, quite tough to do those interviews, actually. Yeah, you'd have to be delicate, wouldn't you? You can't just uh, storm in, so yeah. No, I mean, you'd have to. And the other thing is they're trusting you with their story, and it's emotional, uh, and it's raw, uh, and they're trusting you not to, I don't know, sensationalise it, to to over-egg the pudding, just to tell it as it was for them. Mm. And, to uh, you know, touching word, the people who have, read it who appear in the book who either lost loved ones or their loved ones were missing in action or they were part of the tornado force of all yeah i've had some really good messages to see a it's really fantastic which is really gratifying but it's fantastic not because i'm a brilliant writer it's fantastic because the stories are so good but most importantly a couple of people saying john i didn't know i was there i'm in the book i'm one of the main people that runs through but i didn't know what everybody else was doing yeah. So yes. other people on my squad and other people on the other, I didn't know. Uh, and especially for um, a couple of the wives and a couple of the kids have said, do you know what? It's really captured what it was like for us. And that's really important to me. Yeah. Absolutely. So where did this idea stem from, John? Did you always have it in the back of your mind or was it a recent um, idea? No, I did not have it in the back of my mind at all. So, you know, I did the book about the Spitfire. Yeah. Uh, which told the story of the spit. All, all my stories are the stories of the aircraft, but through the eyes of the people who were there. So if you want a book on the Spitfire's nuts and bolts and different marks, go to Hint Amazon. <laughs> and there's just Google Spitfire book. And I think 3,000 come up or something like that. So I'm not telling the story of the aircraft and its nuts and bolts. I'm telling the story of the aircraft through the eyes of the people who were involved with it. So I did Spitfire then Lancaster, and my publisher said, John, these two books have both been bestsellers. We want, now want you to do something else. And a lot of people said, uh, loads of people were saying, right, you've got to do Hurricane. You've got to do Mosquito. And I kept, I've explained it a million times, especially on Twitter. When are you doing Mosquito? When you, I cannot do those books because the veterans on there, for, for Spitfire and Lancaster, I interviewed 40 or 50 World War II veterans to get the stories. Mm-hmm. The veterans are not there from the hurricane or the mosquito. I can't do another World War II book because the veterans are not there in any numbers and they can't remember their stories in the detail that I need yes. to be able to write the type of book that I write. Absolutely. I could write a book on the hurricane, but that's not the book I write. No. I write a book about the people. Mm-hmm. And so it was um, – I, I write about this at the beginning of the book. It's five years ago. We were having the Gulf War uh, prisoner of war reunion. Mm. Uh, we have one every year where the half dozen surviving uh, prisoners of war and the special forces guys get together uh, just to, we have one quiet beer uh, and then we have 10 really, really loud beers. Um, <laughs> and uh, we were, we had, a, it was the 25th anniversary five years ago. And we had a big dinner in the RAF club where we invited all of our friends. So there's about 110 people in the RAF club wow. for dinner. Uh, we had the RAF band there. Sir John Major came as our guest of honour. The Defence Secretary came. And Sir John was talking about, it was really moving. He talked about his sense of responsibility of sending people to war. He said, because uh, he'd been out to Dahran where the tornadoes were, mm-hmm. three days before the war, four days before the war started. He said, I knew something you didn't at that time. I knew I'd be sending you to war in four days. And he said, I looked into your eyes. And I saw 
my 17, 18 year old son. And many of you were not much older. And yeah. he said he talked about the sense of responsibility, sending people knowing some would die. And he made a point at the dinner of kind of seeking out some of the wives, some of the, so the widows, the loved ones and talking to them. And that was really moving. And it got me to thinking about yeah. the whole thing. And it also we started to talk about it a bit more. Because we'd never really, everybody knew a bit about what everybody else had done. Oh, do you remember when the bomb exploded? Oh, do you remember when? The, but nobody had talked about it in detail. And people started 25 years on talking about it in detail. And that's, I thought, that's a story that I'm, in, I'm intrinsically involved in that story, but I don't know what the story is. <laughs> and it hasn't been done before. So that's how the, 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 the new tornado book came around. So, John, I, you also work with one of my buddies, and he's been on the show a few times, and we've had a few drinks together, Mike Napier. What was his contribution to the book? Napes was a star, uh, because Napes has obviously written a couple of books about the aircraft itself. And what, Nape, what Napes was really kind, he allowed me to kind of use his book as a source. Uh, where it's lying over there somewhere. Um, so it meant that I didn't then have to go out and get loads and loads and loads of uh, technical detail because he had done it all in his book, uh, GR1, uh, and then Tornado Over the Tigris. Yeah. So he's got descriptions of exactly how the TFR worked, exactly what it was like, exactly the kind of the layout of the jet. And Napes allowed me to use those as source material um, for my book. And, of course, some of the people who appeared in Napes' earlier book, uh, people like my flight commander, Gordon Buckley, uh, one of our QFIs, Nige, uh, uh, Nick Hurd, um, they, some of their little bits of the accounts are in uh, Napes' book. And I then just went, I went back and interviewed some of my old friends at length. So he was really kind in allowing me to cite, use and cite his books as the basis of some of the, the, the source material. And also, along with the great stories, there's some brilliant photography. Where did that come from, John? Uh, all sorts of different people. Uh, uh, Ian Black, I think you might, I don't know if you've had Ian, Ian's yeah, a former lightning, phantom lightning, uh, tornado where three pilot, I flew with Ian on 11 squadron. Some of his fantastic photographs in there. I think this is, that's his uh, on the. Uh, yeah, it's a brilliant front, the, like, yeah. The uh, Mark Ranger. So some of his uh, later GR4 taken at Marham are in the book. Um, uh, Simon Whitaker, well, the, there's a famous one looking down onto the cockpit of a tornado going through one of the Welsh valleys, and you can see into the cockpit. You can see where the, the pilot and the nav's hands are. You can, see, and it's a beautiful picture. So also, you know, and some of them are just mates. So I said to all everybody involved in the book, send me some of your Gulf War pics. And there were some astonishing There's ones. There's some stunners in there. Some that I couldn't use, I have to tell you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them. And it's really interesting. So at Bahrain, we were living in a hotel, in the Sheraton Hotel. And it was a really relaxed atmosphere. Not the best atmosphere to go to war in, in retrospect. And so lots of the photographs were people by the swimming pool, having a beer, having a club sandwich, yeah. uh, going out to a restaurant. Uh, Tabuk was austere. They were living in wood, uh, brick shacks on base, rarely going out. And all of their pictures of them all sitting around in shorts, sitting around a bit clump, clumps of <laughs> uh, cactus and sand. Uh, the Doran guys had slightly different uh, accommodation, a different place. And there's a different pictures 
and the different scents from each place. It was really interesting to pick up from very, very different uh, ways of working. Yeah, and it certainly brings the book to life, that's for sure. But uh, do you think this book uh, is accessible for non-aviation enthusiasts? Yeah, it is. And all of my books are, which is why some of the aviation enthusiasts criticize my books. You know, if you look on, you know, uh, Spiffer and Lancaster are the classic example. You, you know, it's got, I don't know, on Amazon, I think it's got a thousand or twelve hundred five star reviews. But there's probably three or four one star reviews that say this isn't very good. This isn't a book about the Spitfire or the Lancaster. Uh, that, you know, he doesn't talk enough about the different marks or the different engines or the different propellers. And that's fine. It's an opinion. It's not a problem. But that's not what I'm writing about. I'm not writing for somebody who wants to know about the nuts and the bolts and the rivets. I'm writing for somebody who wants to know the story of the aircraft. And so the story of the aircraft is there and it's entirely accessible. Yes, there's some technical detail, but I write it in a way. But one of my first editors said, when you write, John, what I want you to do is I want you to think of my mum reading the book. Right. And I've always, I've always kept that 30 years on. I still keep that, whether I'm doing something on TV, uh, a, a presentation when I'm speaking to a big group of people. Mm -hmm. Will your mum understand what I'm saying? Which is why I don't use technical terms. I don't, you know, I don't continually refer to the mark something because my mum wouldn't understand it. Your yeah. mum wouldn't understand it. And so, I'm, so yes, the non-aviation enthusiast will really enjoy the book because it's a book about people. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, the viewers will pick up on that. But uh, yeah, where can we find it online, John? It's everywhere. Uh, I'm pleased to say um, it's currently sitting at number two in the Sunday Times bestseller list, which I'm proud to, to reveal today. <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, listen, it's on Amazon. It's uh, online. You can get signed copies online from Waterstones. I would, if you're interested in a copy, do think about shopping local. Do pop down to your local independent bookshop. They're a huge supporter of us authors, and they don't get they don't get enough love. Um, yes, you might get it an extra quid cheaper online, but if you go to your local bookshop, you'll get a personal service. And uh, you know, I'm a I'm a great believer in uh, trying to shop local if you can, absolutely, as long as you shop and buy the book. <laughs> Brilliant advice. So, uh, while we wrap up, what's next for John Nickel? Uh, well, as I said, I can't do I can't do another World War Two book at the moment. People said, "Do the Harrier, do the Harrier." Well, I can't. Roland White's done the Harrier really brilliantly in his latest Harrier book. Do the Vulcan, do the Vulcan. Can't do the Vulcan. The one really crucial mission in the Vulcan that you, uh, has been done again really well by Roland. Yeah. Buccaneer, Jaguar. Great aircraft, but not the depth of combat sorties that sustain the type of book that I write. Mm -hmm. So I'm in a bit of a pickle. Uh, but I, I am, I've embarked on a new project. Still involves aircraft, but it's a bit different. And I can't tell you because I'm only, it's, it's, this one's not, I've done, for the last few years, I've done a book a year, but I'm taking two years to do this one. So it won't be out for two years. But if you're still if you're still doing aircrew interview, I'll come back on and tell you the stories of the next one are utterly astonishing. 
I'll look forward to that, John. But uh, yeah, where can we find you online? Do you have Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, yeah. anything like that? Uh, I'm, I use Twitter, John, uh, at John Nickel RAF. My website's www.johnnickel.com. I'm not a massive social media uh, person, but I do use Twitter a lot. So uh, a lot of people react with me on Twitter about the book and everything else. So you'll find me there. Brilliant. Well, John, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been fantastic. Really enjoyed it, Mike. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you.